Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Matt Stoller. Matt is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute and the author of Goliath, the 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. He was previously a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee and worked in Congress on financial services policy, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and the foreclosure crisis. Matt has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the New Republic, and elsewhere. As we discuss, Matt also had a brief excursion in Hollywood, where he was a writer and actor on a TV show with Russell Brand. You may be most familiar with Matt from his very active and very entertaining Twitter feed, at Matthew Stoller. Goliath is a big idea history coming at the right time. Concentrated corporate power affects your life every day in ways both subtle and obvious. The domination of key industries by a handful of mega corporations is not the natural or permanent state of affairs. We have successfully fought and tamed monopolies before, but have forgotten how. Goliath reminds us of the way forward. In this episode, we discuss Matt's path from being a remorseful Iraq war supporter to being a vigorous opponent of concentrated financial power, the case for and against monopoly power, the neoliberal roots of the disastrous response to the financial crisis, the link between monopoly power and fascism, dangerous and desirable monopolies, the massive level of state intervention in the economy during and after World War II, the proper role for finance in society, the real basis for the American dream, the impact of fair trade laws and their repeal, whether small businesses are actually any better than big ones, how the ruling class frames a rule is inevitable, the law and economics movement, the Democrats' betrayal of organized labor, the crisis of legitimacy for economics, anti-monopolies political moment, and why Obama was actually bad. This was one of the first episodes I got in the books, and uh, I spent quite a while reading Goliath. I had a great time with it. It's uh, incredibly well-written, well-researched, and full of interesting facts that keep you uh, entertained while also teaching you a lot about the intricacies of our economic and financial system. I expect this book to make quite an impact, and I'm uh, excited to be one of the first people to talk with Matt about it. Here is Matt Stoller. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So would it be fair to say that you've built your career fighting monopoly power? I would say uh, concentrated financial power. So not, uh, I guess I guess sort of got my start uh, in politics around uh, the, the war in Iraq. Actually, I was a war supporter in 2002. Um, oh, interesting. taught me about um, how easily I could be fooled. In particular, my, I was trained at Harvard, so elite training makes you kind of an idiot. Uh, <laughs> you sound like a fancy, you sound fancy, so you don't know you're an idiot. And then I was like, oh, I endorsed mass murder. That seems terrible. So I kind of got depressed for a few years, did a bunch of research. And then out of that, I, I kind of became more radicalized about our American institutions. And um, wow. yeah, you know, it's what happens when you grow up and life seems fair because you're like white and, and wealthy and stuff. Um, it's just, you're like, think nothing of, of endorsing cruelty because you just don't know. Um, uh, and it's depressing to like, realize that like the institutions that you've, um, that have kind of validated you socially are actually corrupt. Um, and I, I, so I, I did a bunch of research and then eventually I started to work in democratic politics. I worked on primaries and then I also worked on net neutrality, uh, cause the only place where people, where I found that like, um, sir, you know, people who were like read the New York times, um, and we're like, oh, wait a second, the Judy Miller at the New York Times was lying about the war in Iraq. We'd go to the blogs because that's where people would saying, oh, yeah, all of this on uh, stuff on Iraq is bullshit. And 
then net neutrality happened in like 2005 or so. And that was the first time that I noticed that concentrated corporate power could actually undermine, uh, I, I was running a blog at the time, which is a small business, could actually undermine uh, free speech and, uh, and sort of this democratic kind of commons, such as it was. And, um, and so that was my first introduction to monopoly power. And then I didn't know that it was like a monopoly power question. I, I sort of was like everyone else. I kind of learned it later on. But then I got involved in the financial crisis. I started working for a congressman in 2009 who was on the Financial Services Committee. And I got involved in learning about the banking system and um, the bailouts and then eventually in the foreclosure crisis. And I started to learn about the history of the housing finance system. And then I kind of got into monopolies in sort of 2011, 2012, and now started to realize that like monopolies are basically how concentrated finance manifests itself in all sorts of different markets. And that's, uh, I've been, I went, eventually went to the Senate Budget Committee, but at that, in 2015, and it's sort of at that point, I, um, I kind of understood the story. And uh, in between then, in between, so I, my boss, uh, in 2011 lost in the tea party wave. And then I, I actually did some work at think tank. And then I also did some television producing. And weirdly I was on a comedy show with Russell Brand, um, on FX, which was not a good show, but it was a fun experience. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then later on, um, I, uh, I went back to Congress cause, uh, I, I didn't particularly enjoy Hollywood. Um, and then, um, and then I, uh, and then eventually I got, went to Senate Budget Committee and um, started to really research the, the history of, of concentrated financial power and its relationship to the Democratic Party. And I've kind of been guided by this basic question, which is, you know, America has a lot of nice things. And at some point, our institutions were able to make reasonable decisions and build these nice things because nice things don't just appear out of nowhere. You have to have institutions that can sort of construct those nice things. Now, it was a lot of bad things too, but it's like, since I've been in politics, and I think this is a pretty common experience, I've only seen our political institutions make bad decisions, right? And I wanted to understand why. And I figured, well, there have been times when that wasn't true. So I wrote a book, uh, I did a bunch of research to figure out like what happened, when did we make good decisions? Who were the people that did it? How did they do it? And, uh, and why did we change? And actually a lot of that ends up revolving around our relationship to um, monopoly power and concentrated financial power. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton there. And I definitely want to come back to the wrench your book throws in this narrative of just incessant progress in American history. Uh, but before we do that, could you just make the case that's often made in favor of monopolies, like why they're good, their profits can fund R&D, and they can be natural monopolies over certain industries? Why do people argue in favor of these things? It's a great question. So there's there's basically two arguments for monopoly power. But it gets back to the kind of election of 1912. But the the, but the gist is they're, they're, they're different variants of an argument for aristocracy. So there's the right wing argument, which is the one that says, um, you know, these people built monopolies and they're the ones who know how to manage them. Uh, they're just better at it than you are. So don't take it away from them. Let them generate cash. Let them run these businesses. Um, if you don't like, if you don't let them do that, the economy will do really badly. Who knows how to like clean up Facebook better than Mark Zuckerberg? Right, that guy's a techie. He's a programmer. He's amazing. And so we shouldn't, um, 
inhibit him from doing that. And then there's all sorts of like logistical elements to that argument. You know, there are there are natural monopolies, there are network effects, there's economies of scale, all of which have there's national security elements. You know, we need our monopolies to fight China's monopolies or or whatever. And, and you know, Teddy Roosevelt was saying that too back in, in 1912. Um, but all of it basically comes down to, well, there are these people who know how to run things and let them do it. So that's one argument. The other argument is very similar, but it's the left-wing variant. And the left-wing variant, you hear from like Brad Smith of Microsoft, you hear it from like Kamala Harris, you hear it from various others, and it's subtle. Um, it was, it's the, it's, so the, the, sorry, I shouldn't have confused it with Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt, this is actually Teddy Roosevelt's view. He had, uh, had this idea called the New Nationalism, and Herbert Crowley, the founders of the New Republic, um, Thurston Veblen, a bunch of thinkers that were came out of the sort of the quasi-socialist tradition said, what we really need is we need state planning. Um, we need these, these monopolies are natural. They're efficient. The people that built them like kind of know what they're doing. So you don't want to inhibit those monopolies because that would be, that would be bad. That would be against the natural order of things. Eugene Debs was actually like this too. Um, what we need in fact, though, is like, we need to have, um, the state running those monopolies, either owning them directly. That was the Debs model or, or regulating them right through, uh, boards of experts. That was the Teddy Roosevelt model. And so those two variants, like the, the, the kind of let the monopolies do what they want is more of the sort of J.P. Morgan, um, William Howard Taft way of thinking about the world. The new nationalism, like we need regulated monopoly is more of the Teddy Roosevelt view of the world. And that was largely the view of the world that I think the Obama administration, the Clinton administration took, which was, um, you know, Google, don't do evil. That's very much a moral frame. And uh, it's that argument, you know, we can protect you. We are, uh, and we can do what is good for you. Um, it's just kind of the left wing, the left wing aristocracy. Technocrats love that kind of stuff, right? Um, yeah, and and so you clearly don't take this view. You can tell, huh? <laughs> yeah. So why should we oppose monopoly well, power? So it, it it gets down to a basic view of of humanity, right? So the third argument, the one I have that I believe in, is um, is what what uh, Louis Brandeis really developed. And uh, this was uh, Woodrow Wilson used Brandeis's frame, which he called uh, the new freedom. And uh, and that was, you know, and, and 1912 was kind of like corporate America was basically 20 years old at that point um, and had gone through a big merger wave and a bunch of changes. And so in 1912, they were kind of ready to make a decision about the politics of corporate America. And so Woodrow Wilson, you know, made the decision that well, we're not going to have uh, private masters, which was the Taft model, and we're not going to have public masters, which was the, both the Teddy Roosevelt and the Eugene Debs model. He said, we're going to have no masters, right? We're going to have not regulated monopoly, but regulated competition. We'll break up these companies and then we'll regulate business practices and market structures to make sure that you have uh, competition around things that are good. So around high quality products and services and not around fraud um, or, or, or predatory activities. There's a whole, such a whole bunch of details around that. And there are cases in which you have, um, you know, you have some, some, uh, there are physical constraints on how many competitors there can be. And so you need to handle those situations somewhat specially, but you know, when in the first, um, you know, 18 months, he, uh, he broke up, Wilson broke up AT&T is the first time AT&T had been broken up. Uh, he went after JP Morgan, uh, JP Morgan's railroad, um, uh, structures, they founded the Federal Reserve to take power from Wall Street, uh, created the Federal Trade Commission, uh, passed the Clayton Act, passed laws uh, or did, did 
Mass laws against child uh, child labor, um, agricultural supports, the income tax, um, just a whole bunch of stuff that was really about kind of restructuring our relationship to corporate power, kind of a proto-New Deal. Uh, he didn't get to finish it because World War I started. But, um, but it, was, it was a sort of remarkable attack on concentrated corporate power that had emerged in the previous 20 years. Liberals don't know this because Woodrow Wilson was, um, you know, there was, there was, uh, that was also the period of, of um, really the institutionalization, not the institutionalization of Jim Crow happened about 15 years earlier, 10, 15 years earlier, but it was like the work, the nadir of race relations. Woodrow Wilson was, was fantastically racist. So it's this weird, you know, moment where he was promoting the new freedom, but, you know, really only for white people. Um, and uh, so just because you believe in a democracy of citizens, um, you know, and you that that that's the right thing to believe in, which Wilson did believe in. But Wilson also believed that citizens had to be white males and that's the wrong thing to believe in. So you shouldn't confuse those two things. But those are that was the essential argument. Um, and that's the argument. Like, I basically believe in like um what, you know, Wilson, Jefferson, Brandeis, um, what they, what they believe, Frederick Douglass what you know, that basic view of the world, um, but without the racism and, and, um, homophobia and sexism. And I think everybody should be a citizen. And I think citizens should have control over their, uh, over the institutions that govern their lives, which include, uh, which include corporations. And I think the way you do that is not by, uh, centralizing control and then having people vote over what those centralized institutions do, because that just creates opaque bureaucracies. I think what you need to do is you need to decentralize property. And that's the anti-monopoly framework for how to address concentrated power and justice. Yeah. And, and so you, you started talking about this, but you start your book out a bit over 100 years ago. Um, so why is it important to set this context? It seems like a lot of people are focusing on like the here and now, break up Facebook, break up Google, but you, you go much further back than that. Yeah. So I started with a, a kind of question, right? Which is why did the Democrats screw up the financial crisis so badly? Right. And I, you know, there are a lot of different theories as to why. And like, I think the common one of the common ones on the left is, oh, you know, they were money in politics. There were people that were paid well to do it. And I, having worked in Congress, I can tell you that, like, that's just not the way that people were making decisions. They were there was certainly a little bit of bribery here and there, but like mostly it was just like really bad decisions. Um, They got the corruption. for, They got the terrible decisions for free. Right. You didn't need to bribe these people. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's like soft, there's some soft corruption and stuff, but really they believed in what they were doing. And, you know, there are other kind of theories about it, but basically it boils down to, they believe that the way to create a good society is to, um, is to concentrate wealth and power in the hands of technocrats. Right. And I think the real core of why you can say that it wasn't corruption is because like, Democrats went along with it. Democrats loved it. Uh, Democrats didn't notice the foreclosure crisis. Democrats didn't put pressure on their leaders to uh, decentralize power. They, in fact, put their faith in these experts. So it was an ideological approach as much as it was anything else. To understand that ideology, I didn't really get why they thought that. So I had to look as to how those people, what were the stories in the minds of policymakers in 2008? who were making nine, who were making these decisions. And I, what I discovered is that there were a series of stories about uh, that they, either they learned directly uh, in the 70s or 80s, or they learned from people who taught them. And these stories were about the collapse and the crisis of democracy in the 1970s that had to do with too much New Deal regulation, 
um, the, the, the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and the, the intersection of and, and the counterculture, and that um, the there was there had been a rebellion of the, the Democrats, then called the the I guess the neoliberals, New Democrats, Atari Democrats, a number of names, but they had broken from an older tradition of decentralizing power and wealth, and so in two thousand and nine, when the, when you get these people that like their origin is in saying we need to concentrate wealth and power to solve the problems, the crises of inflation of the 1970s, they got very per, like emotional and upset when you're like, maybe we shouldn't concentrate wealth and power because that's how they solved the problems of the 1970s. So I was like, what, what happened in the 1970s? And I went back and um, the one person who knew when things were going to go blow up in the, during the crisis that I was relying on is this economist named Jane Darista, who was like in her seventies or eighties. And she told me, you know, I, I was like, how do you know that like, this random derivatives market's going to blow up. And she'd be like, oh, I worked for this guy named Wright Patman in the banking committee in the 1960s and 70s when we were taking this stuff apart. And we knew it was a really bad idea to do it. And we were fighting against taking it apart. Um, and I, and I, so I started studying his life. And then I came upon some information about how he had fought chain stores in the 1930s. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And then I learned that he had been overthrown by the neoliberal generation, the Watergate babies in 1975. And I was like, Wow, that's amazing. That was Bill Clinton's generation. That was essentially the generation of thinking that was in charge during the crisis. And they rebelled against Patman. So who's Patman? And to understand who Patman was, I had to realize that his formative experience was overthrowing this really amazing kind of plutocrat named Andrew Mellon, who was the Secretary of Treasury in from 1921 to 1932 and owned three Fortune 500 companies. So he was essentially a private equity billionaire and the Secretary of the Treasury. And at the, at the time, that meant he was also the chair of the Federal Reserve. He was an enormously powerful guy that nobody knew anything about. And, and, and Patman had actually gotten him impeached and fired in 1932, which I didn't know anything about in the midst of this massive, massive march called the Bonus Army, which um, Martin Luther King actually based his Poor People's Campaign on that. And, and I had never heard of it. And then in order to understand who Andrew Mellon was, I had to go back to J.P. Morgan at the turn of the century, which is really who Andrew Mellon learned from. And that led me to the election of 1912, which was kind of like laid the template for how we in the U.S., um, countries all over, everyone was dealing with what do you do about industrial power. And in the U.S., the, the decisions about what to do were really laid down in 1912. And so that was kind of like the big bang of corporate politics. And that, so that's where I, um, the choices were really clear. It was the only election we've had that was really just about corporate power. Uh, so I, that's where I started it. And like everybody in the new deal kind of got their start. I, you, not everybody, but a lot of people in the new deal kind of got their start in the, in the election in 1912. So I started there and then rolled it forward into basically the financial crisis and the rise of big tech. Yeah. I mean, so reading this, you know, as somebody on the left looking at our current political situation and the power of big corporations and how little the government is doing to fight them, it's easy to get a little bit despondent and hopeless uh, but what I found really interesting about the start of the book is that like it was actually worse in the past. Like the control that Andrew Mellon had over the economy, uh, over our government, and the disastrous consequences that we found in the Great Depression is kind of hard to imagine even today. Yeah, I mean it, it's true, and like I mean I think there's some problems today that are like more difficult to deal with th than they were then, but there were also problems I think then that were harder to deal with than they are now. So. Uh, but that's right. And like, I think one of the things that was really interesting to learn about, I mean, the whole book, like 
you know, I think it's a really fun book, but the reason that it's fun is because I was, I was like learning so much from these people in the past and like the, the sort of the way that people used to talk was, you know, it had this vitality to it because they wouldn't say things like, you know, if you notice like today's rhetoric, you know, we talk about infrastructure and human capital instead of like bridges and people. Right. And so there's this whole language of like yeah. McKinseyfied bullshit that we talk, that we use. And they didn't use that in the past. They used like words that like, like honor and they use, they use talk about bridges. They talked, when they didn't talk, you know, they talk, if, you know, the, there's, there's all sorts of like euphemisms that we use that they didn't. And, um, and, and, you know, they talk about robber barons and, and um, autocracy. But like in the 1920s, you know, there was a real movement to uh, get rid of democracy, right? And it was not just a, a right-wing thing. It was like, you know, Walter Lippmann wrote a couple of books in the early 1920s, basically saying democracy doesn't work. And the U.S. Uh, Army Training Manual in, in 1928 said, you know, democracy leads to like demagogism and all of this terrible stuff. And, you know, there was a real intellectual movement and just this profound disillusionment from World War One, and also from... The uh, both Teddy Roosevelt, who had been president from 1901 to 19 uh, to uh, to 1909, and then Woodrow Wilson from 1913 to 1921. I mean, you effectively had 20 years of reformist language, which ended with like this catastrophic world war and effectively the Palmer raids and a, and a you know start the Wilson regime starts with calls for a new freedom and ends with basically the government engaged in a terrorist campaign against its own citizens. So there's profound disillusionment all over the world. And you see, you know, in, in Italy, that's when in the early 20s, that's when Mussolini takes over. In Germany, that's when uh, Hitler's beer hall push started in the early 20s. You saw real attacks on democracy. Like democracy was not like today, you know, we didn't, I, I kind of got interested in like, what it, how did American uh, politicians talk about Hitler in the 30s before he was like Hitler, right? Before he was like the guy that ends all internet conversations, right? How, <laughs> how do you talk about the most evil guy that's ever lived before he's done all his evil shit, right? And like there were all these real – like they tried. They couldn't figure out how to talk about him. But like even something as simple as like, well, we don't want another Hitler. Like we have that lesson today, right, which we didn't have in the 1920s and 30s because we just didn't – like we, we realized that things could go really bad, right? Like we understood the KKK was really dangerous. We understood like that, that things could go really wrong, but like we didn't have the example of systematic extermination of ethnic groups that was like exposed to everyone. Like, I mean, we obviously had that, right? That happened, but like the lesson that racism that uh, leads to these just horrific um, civilization, you know, abhorrent events. Like we didn't know that or not, not, we didn't know that, but we didn't, that wasn't in our face. That wasn't part of our culture, the way that it became after world war two and the way that it is now. So what we get that these things end up in really bad places. Um, and that's a really important cultural lesson to have. And we didn't have that in the 1920s and thirties. Then again, they didn't have climate change. So, you know, there we go. Yeah. And, and I hadn't really considered the, cooperation between concentrated markets and fascism. And you quote a Senate subcommittee in 1944, which said the monopoly soon got control of Germany, brought Hitler to power and forced virtually the whole world into war. Right. And Eisenhower is saying that breaking up IG Farben is essential to prevent the return of the German war machine. Um, so I, I just wasn't really aware that like this uh, cooperation existed. 
Could you just talk a little bit about like why monopoly is an essential component of a fascist state? Yeah. Um, so it's it's totally fascinating when you go back like the today, you know, these annoying economists are like antitrust is a science. But like that's not actually true at all. And what really was going on when it was a sort of at its heyday uh, was that antitrust was a protection against autocracy. And that was true. You go back to Jefferson and you could see that different forms of autocracy. But that, that, that notion that we need to protect against aristocracy and, and autocracy um, was really refreshed in the 30s and 40s when the New Dealers saw what happened when you didn't control corporate concentration and cartels. So like the New Dealers were not just afraid of winning of losing elections. Like Democrats, they are like, oh no, we'll lose an election. Like they were afraid that like they would lose an election and maybe be shot, right? Like that wasn't, you know, they didn't, it was sort of a long way from like, it was a long way from like that, from losing an election to being shot, but they saw it happen in other countries, right? The way that we look to Europe and we see, you know, them passing privacy laws, like they looked to Europe and they saw Mussolini shooting his enemies, right? Um, so, uh, so the, um, the way that, uh, like the way that Americans saw Germany, right, which had caused two world wars, right, and a lot of the people during World War II had gotten their sort of start after, during and, and after World War One, they were like, why does Germany keep causing all these problems? Well, let's look at their economic structure, and their economic structure is driven by cartels and monopolies. In the 1920s, IG Farben was a roll-up of a bunch of chemical companies. They used a lot of their corporations to engage in, in spying and to manipulate their, um, uh, uh, you know, democracies they wanted to invade. And then also, you know, the, it was much easier for Hitler to take over the country because it was so cartelized, right? You could just, or Mussolini, the same thing. You just put a few people in a room and just run the country because you just had a few cartels. You only needed to talk to a few people. So Thurman Arnold said, who's the antitrust chief under um, under Roosevelt in the late thirties, you know, he said, uh, like this was pretty common, you know, the, the, the country was already organized. They just needed the general to step into control and Hitler was that general, right? So the idea is that if you have a lot of, you know, it's basic Madisonian, uh, checks and balances. If you had in the private sector, if you have a lot of small businesses, if you allow a lot of different decentralized, um, sections of power, then it becomes very hard for anyone powerful faction to take over everything. But if you just start concentrating power, then it becomes much easier to, you know, to further concentrate power and then, you know, turn everything into an autocracy really, really quickly. And you see that today with um, like Edward Snowden talked about uh, turnkey totalitarianism, right? So if you build a, a massive surveillance apparatus in the hands of just a few companies for online advertising, it becomes really easy to turn that off, uh, off advertising or turn it into a, a, an, an autocratic or totalitarian social control system. So you can see it. Yeah, but there was also this kind of irony where the United States government functionally created its own monopolies on essential goods for the war effort. Um, so if the government is genuinely trying to improve the well-being of the public, couldn't a monopoly create efficiencies and new capabilities? Or is there something inherently bad about monopoly power? Um, or is it that, that monopolies make the bad behavior or the consequences of bad behavior that much worse? Why don't you, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Can you just like um, sort of rephrase it? What yeah. are you trying to do? Yeah. So, so, so I guess like, is monopoly power always and everywhere bad or monopoly, like the MTA in New York has a monopoly on like public transit, right? 
And that's probably for the best because I don't want there to be like two competing subways operating like similar lines, right? Like that's like a natural and good monopoly if it's run by, maybe that's a bad example because of uh, how poorly it's been historically run. Um, but is there something inherently bad with like all monopolies or if there was a you know nationalized industry no, I, where... I, you know, I see what you're was, saying. I, like, I get it now. Um, yeah. No, there's not, it's not about, um, it's really, it's about unregulated private monopolies, right? That's really the problem. And then what do you do about that? And in, in a case like, um, like the subways or say the post office, right? Something like that, you know, as long as it's democratically accountable and, and essentially, um, runs according to sort of neutral rules so you can understand the bureaucracy, it's, it's, there's no problem with, if there's a public monopoly, like there's a public monopoly over say schools, right? There are public monopolies over the use of force. There are public, um, a whole series of public monopolies. The post office is a monopoly around mail. And, and, and that's not, that's not necessarily a a bad thing. What what you really like want to think about is, um, how do you make sure that power is decentralized? And there are certain, um, physical characteristics of certain industries that mean that you're going to not be able to have competition. So like electric utilities or water systems, or maybe the mail at various points, you don't want uh, competition because it's, it's inefficient. There are other systems, uh, which are network systems, which, you know, same thing. You, there are ways you can create more accountability and competition, but sometimes there are, um, you know, you don't want to have to string to fiber optic, lines. And so you can regulate that. Um, and then there are, there are, there are specialized, the specialized industry, which is, which is really dangerous, which is finance. And when you have competition in finance, you know, you can have competition that provides more credit for people, um, who are trying, you know, that's underpinning productive activity, like competition among small business loans, but you can also have competition, um, around predatory activities. So finding people, who are more susceptible to taking, um, uh, you know, predatory loans uh, or, or high interest, high fee credit cards or things like that. And that's a kind of competition you don't want. You also could have speculation, right? So, you know, finance is really dangerous. One of the things the New Dealers is they really regulated the financial system. They kept it very small. And the reason is because if you can control finance, then uh, you can kind of, um, you know, money is 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 a political commodity, right? When I want to create more tomatoes, I have to grow the tomatoes. But if I want to create more money, I just have to convince someone that my, say, WeWork stock is valuable, and then I can issue it. And if people believe me, then it is valuable. And it's, of course, WeWork is not valuable. But but this illusion, uh, the unregulated financial system allows for people to invent fake um, financial assets and then trade them for real assets. Because while WeWork stock was fake valuable, the homes that, you know, the CEO Adam Newman bought are actually valuable. So he was able to trade counterfeit stuff for real things. And that's why, you know, you don't want competition, too much competition in certain aspects of finance because speculation can create this sort of realm of illusion where you're actually competing over which kind of grifter has, more credibility to create more counterfeit stuff that they can trade for real things. So there's different, basically what I'm saying is that like what we're really trying to do is control concentrated financial power and make sure that people, when they're there, that open competition happens in productive ways that are socially beneficial. Um, and that there are certain, you know, 
industries where you're going to you're going to have to have some concentration of power just because there are economies of scale or network effects. Uh, but you can manage those with like if you if you have some some competition in those oligopolies, you have some protection for labor, you have some protection uh, for engineers through patents, some protection for artists through copyright, if you some protection for farmers through farm supports. Basically, what you need to do the anti-monopoly philosophy is a producerist philosophy. You want to protect the people who make things and sell things and produce things, and make sure that they're getting the benefit for what they're doing. And you want to block the intermediary, the monopolist, the middleman, the banker from taking too much and controlling. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to financial power and the role of finance, but so. Going into, you, I mean, you you have a, an interesting background, you know you, right? Yeah, yeah. I have some a little bit of personal experience with this, but more on the uh, operation side of things. Um, I never worked in finance directly, but uh, but yeah. So coming out of the Great Depression, there was this New Deal, a radical restructuring of the American political economy, uh, and regulations that are kind of hard to imagine now. For example, you write about the government restricting borrowing for certain types of assets like refrigerators and washers in favor of assets like cars in 1946 to prevent inflation and production bottlenecks that follow World War One. So massive state intervention in World War II. Sorry, oh, sorry. Or this is after World War II, but after World War One, there was a lot of inflation, correct? Oh, right. right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I hear what you're saying. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just like pretty incredible to imagine government control over consumer purchasing behavior like this today. But at the same time, faith in government institutions was like higher than it's kind of ever been. Um, and there was just this like complete paradigm shift in, in how the economy and politics of the country were run. Yeah, no, that's right. And what happened is basically the reason that people gained faith in their political institutions is because the, you know, right, Patman's big character in my book and FDR and the whole Pecora and all these guys fought bitterly against the plutocrats and did that from 1932 onward and against the Nazis too. And they improved people's lives, right? So they showed results and what, what people, people then were like, Oh, I guess public officials can do things that are really meaningful and democracy can work. Right. So they had, they had lost their faith in democracy because then when they elected people in the teens and twenties, uh, that they didn't necessarily deliver, and uh, so they didn't necessarily have faith in their political institutions. And then they gained tremendous faith in their political institutions because the, you know, there was the citizens and then the, the political leaders really worked to uh, improve society and did improve society. And so by 1946, you did have a very granular, um, where you're talking about are credit controls. They used to handle inflation, not by raising interest rates and throwing the country into a recession, but by very specifically targeting sectors that were causing the inflation and reducing the uh, financing of those sectors, so that um, so that there wouldn't you know there wouldn't be those those bottlenecks. Um, and people people were fine with that because you know FDR ran a pretty clean administration. Uh, there wasn't a lot of corruption in the New Deal, and it and they saw the benefits. Yeah, and and something that was like just really crazy to imagine now is uh, how marginalized and uh, regulated finance was. So you have these great quotes. Um, the idiot son of the local elite was stashed at the local bank. As one businessman put it, when encountering a Yale grad at a bank, one needed to speak very slowly. And uh, <laughs> from 1929 to 1950, the New York Stock Exchange hired a total of eight floor traders. 
Um, so this is crazy to me because like finance likes to portray itself as doing this necessary, difficult and important work. But during this period of the greatest economic growth in our country's history, at least in the 20th century, um, these bankers were serving as utility and big businesses invested their own profits in factories and other inputs. Um, so what does this say about the role finance should play in our society and what role it's playing now? Well, I mean, I think it sort of speaks for itself, right? I mean, banking should be a public utility. And like, what's crazy is that like, so there, Philip Zweig wrote this wonderful book on Walter Riston, who's a really important banker who kind of ran Citigroup. I have a lot on Walter Riston in here. He basically broke the New Deal model of finance at, out of Citibank in the 1950s and 60s. There's this old line that like, whenever you need a, you want a financial crisis, just have Citibank and leverage, right? <laughs> Throughout history. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, what was crazy about, it's a wonderful book, long, but it's wonderful. And one of the things that I learned that was just crazy is that like in the 1940s and, and early 50s, you know, Walter Riston like broke from banking tradition that had just been created like in the last 20 years by trying to like make money. Banks were not trying to make money. Like it was crazy. It's crazy to think about like, but like the idea of they just wanted to have bigger balance sheets. They didn't, they didn't actually want a profit. Right. And it was weird when Walter Riston was like, Hey, we should try to make a profit. It's like a weird thing in the industry. So like, that's just crazy. Right. To think today. Yeah. Um, but like that is actually, that was actually, that was real. I mean, that was a real difference. Like culturally, I mean, that's the thing is it's so hard to explain to people because like in the 1950s, just kind of a parallel to this, you know, I wrote a piece on this um, for uh, the, the Stigler Center's blog, but it's like, you go back and you read a lot of people in the 1950s and they're like, American capitalism, of course, it means economic equality. That's what it means. Wow. Right. It goes to those European aristocrats um, and cartels and monopolies like you, everyone who wants equality, you know, comes over to America and builds a more equal society through capitalism, right? And that's actually how they talk. That's how they thought. And that's actually how it worked. And then, you know, today you talk to, you ask people, is American capitalism mean equality? Does it, you know, and it's like, oh, they'll laugh at you. Like the Trump's um, agriculture secretary just said, oh, well, American capitalism, I don't know if he said American capitalism, but he basically says America means, you know, that dairy farms are going to die because small dairy farms, you know, big big destroys the small. That's just the American way. And it's like, that's the American way today. It's the American way maybe since this, the nineties, but like that is not the American way in the 1950s. And really you could go back to like the Tocqueville into the 1830s. I mean, there was just this completely different intellectual framework for how to understand power and equality and market structure. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that the American dream was built on, like there was some reality there, right? At least if you're a white guy in the United States following World War II, you, if you uh, were a veteran, you got the GI Bill, you got access to free or cheap higher education, then a good union job waited for you and you could like work at it for your whole life and provide for a family. Like there's some truth to that. Uh, but now it's, not, like, to it. it's not, it's not just, I mean, look, and the other thing is that there was the, the new deal was really good for white men, but it was also like, relatively speaking, it was actually good for everyone. Right. I mean, the income growth for African-Americans really started increasing pretty dramatically in the 1930s and didn't stop increasing. Like it increased twi twice the rate of white workers until the 1970s. Um, it started from a much lower base. Um, same thing with lifespans. Um, the gap between white and black lifespans in like 1930 was, you know, 15 years. I mean, it's crazy. And now it's like, you know, and it, it 
radically re- was reduced. There's still a gap and that's terrible, but like things got better for everyone and they got better disproportionately for people who didn't have uh, as much power. And then it's not just that they got a good union job. It's also that you could start a small business fairly easily. There are a whole bunch of network of pricing laws that protected small businesses. Well, let me just give you a, an observation about like things that were built on top of the New Deal. Harvey Milk, who in many ways was one of the key leaders of the gay rights movement, ran a camera store in the Castro in San Francisco in the 1970s. There wouldn't be, there aren't camera stores anymore. Those pricing laws that protected small businesses are gone. Now, Harvey Milk, would he have been able to do what he did if he were a manager at Best Buy? (laughs) I don't think so. And that's like the politics of the New Deal was not just the ability to just get a white picket fence home and and a good job. It was political independence. And that's such an important part of what they were constructing. Yeah. And, and so you've mentioned something there that's based on a fair trade laws, right? That's right. So could you just right. explain what those are? Yeah. So there were a series of laws. Um, one of them is called um, resale price maintenance, also known as fair trade. There was one that's called Robinson-Patman, the Robinson-Patman Act. But basically what these laws did is they said that if you're a big guy, you can't use your ability to access capital markets to underprice your competitor. So like if you're Walmart, you're not allowed to go to a, a supplier of something and say, give me a better price than my competitor because I'm big, right? You mm-hmm. can't do that. That was illegal. And what that meant, and because the reason is because there was like a Walmart of the 1920s and 30s, which was called the A&P supermarket. It's still around, but it's not. Uh, I think actually might have gone bankrupt recently, but it wasn't. It was now. It, it wasn't a big deal after the 1950s. But they were like the Walmart of the 1930s, and they were just they were brutalizing farmers and workers and suppliers in all sorts of ways. And so there was a big battle between independent-owned stores and and chain stores. And the result of that battle were a series of laws that protected the small manufacturer, the small merchant, the corner store, the the local farm. And the, the pricing laws were, were really important then. These laws prevented bulk discounts. They prevented a lot of things like, um, you know, like kickbacks in retail. Um, and they prevented, they prevented price discrimination. And they also allowed manufacturers to set a, a, a minimum price on their goods so that you know, you, you couldn't have a discounter come in and, and use your product as a loss leader unless you allowed them to. And all that stuff was gutted basically in the 1970s, actually by the left, by the consumer rights movement. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to uh, Ralph Nader and consumerism. Um, it's funny you mentioned that like fair trade, uh, it controls like the ability of a big company to set the prices basically from their suppliers. This is such a fundamental part of profitability that for like Michael Porter, Porter's five forces, it's like one of the five forces. Um, so Walmart or Amazon or whoever can just squeeze these suppliers that have no choice but to sell to the biggest market around. That's 100% right. I like that you brought up Michael Porter. There, it's coming through. I see who you are. <laughs> I've added myself. You yeah, you've got your training in evil. Yes, exactly. Uh, you got to have a little bit on you. A little what? A little dirt on you yes. to really, you know. I mean, was, I didn't support the Iraq War. I was also ten at the time, so my opinions didn't matter totally, very much. Totally. No, I, I, I feel like my, um, I feel like I have a lot of dirt on me for that one. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it motivates you, right? 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is you can't really apologize for that. Right. Cause you're just like, Oh, that's mass murder. You can't, you can't undo that. Um, but, um, you know, um, anyway, where was I? Oh yeah. So, so, so fair, oh, fair trade. I, I do want to, um, kind yeah, of, no, that's a core part of profitability. But the other thing is that it's, it's also with, you know, for, for, but it, you know, to, to, to put it in sort of slightly different moral terms, it's a core part of Liberty, right? Because if you want to make, if you manufacture something, and it's like your widget, right? And you're, and you want to, and you want to sell it. The way that our economy is structured now, uh, you can go to Bentonville where Walmart is, or you can go to Seattle where Amazon is. And that's basically it. I mean, there's, there's some other stores, but it's, it's, and they have rooms full of lawyers that spend their time trying to figure out how to make sure you make no margin, which, so what it means is that people can't, invent and tinker. And that is a core part of freedom because they can't get it into the retail system. When, when we had these laws that protected independent corner store and that protected the local manufacturer, you could go to your local store and you could say, Hey, I've made a widget, you know, would you consider selling it? And like, there's this guy who sold like a special form of car wax and he just like went to some of the local stores and they were like, sure, we'll put it on the counter, see if it sells. And it did. And eventually he was able to build a business around it. And, and he, they, the discounters couldn't, um, couldn't undermine him because he could set his own price. And you see that like a lot of the wonderful um, goods in our, in our world were actually created because of that, that fair trade pricing. Like Apple Computer, actually, they were, they were discounters that were trying to like um, mess with Apple Computer in the early 80s. But being able to maintain the control of the price of your own product, not of that product line, like you don't want all car wax, you don't want to be able to collude to keep the price of all car wax um, the same or high, but you want to be able to set the price of your car wax if it's special, because that way you get competition around things like quality and service and not just quality around kind of um, the, 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 the cheapest, which does sort of tend to lead towards, um, towards actually bad quality products and less selection. And ultimately, higher prices in the end game. Yeah, I mean, so some of this kind of implicitly assumes that small business is is better. Um, do you think that's fair to say? I don't think it's morally better, but I think that um, there are a couple reasons why small businesses structurally are healthier for a democracy. Like, first of all, if you're a jerk and you run a small business, you can only affect a small number of people because it's a small business. And if there are a lot of small businesses, those people who work for you can leave and go to other businesses. So you just have less power, right? So it's not like people who run small businesses are morally any better. They just don't have as much power. And power in concentrated hands is, is dangerous. Um, so I guess that's the main, that's the main aspect of like the reason that small businesses are, are important. I mean, the other thing is like if you're at a big company and you're protected by a union or you're not protected by a union, a really important protection that people don't think about is that you could just leave that company and start a small business, right? So small businesses are, you know, they, there are a lot of reasons why small businesses are important. You go in for innovation and all these sort of practical reasons, but on a fundamental level of political liberty, they really matter. Yeah. So, so that's compelling to me. Um, I did a little bit of research, small business, you know, within American society and within American politicians, it's like, it can do no wrong, right? It's the big applause line at every state of the union. But 
you know, when you actually look at the numbers, small businesses pay less. They have they're harder to organize, uh, harder to unionize, go under more often, um, and offer worse benefits. So, I, I buy your argument on the political liberty side of things, but from a perspective of like no, actually working, those numbers are really. Um, uh, those are kind of like I, I've seen those numbers. They're not like they're manipulated. Let's just put it that way. Um, you know, like Stacy Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self Reliance um, has like done a lot of work on this. But like you know, it's not it's not really tr- that's not really true. Gotcha. Um, Is it not an apples to apples comparison? It's usually it's not an apples to apples comparison. It's often things like you know. The franchise rest the franchise restaurants for certain you know they'll they'll consider franchise restaurants part of the calculation for big businesses sometimes and then sometimes they'll not based they won't based on whether they want to defend larger institutions or smaller institutions and then there's a lot of companies that are like you know they'll be like oh you know look at big businesses pay so much more but it's like well you know Google pays its employees a lot of money, but then it also has a ton of janitors that they've subcontracted out. So I don't know. Those seems like those people are kind of Google employees because they're just at Google. They're controlled by Google, but they're just like they're hired by, say, like Yo Consulting or whatever. And they're not part of the you know, they're not part of like the metric that you would look at for Google or General Electric. All this. So the fissured workplace, which is sort of the, the term that people use skews a lot of the statistics. That makes sense. And you'd expect high profitability industries to generate larger businesses that concentrate and then pay their employees more. I mean, maybe, but you could also see, like, first of all, it ain't easy to, to organize uh, big businesses, right? So one of the things that you saw, like one of the most organized industries in the country in the 70s was the trucking industry. And that was largely an industry of small businesses because uh, it's easier to organize small businesses, actually. Um, if you, good luck trying to organize Walmart, right? Um, the, the thing is, is that big businesses can cross subsidize union busting, right? Like if you make, and this was true back in the 1890s. I mean, the Homestead strike, which was a really important strike. I kind of go into that a little bit in 1892, you know, it was a bunch of steel workers that were striking against Carnegie steel and Henry Clay Frick. And the reason that Henry Clay Frick and Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie were able to beat them is because they had other steel plants. So if they didn't have other steel plants that were making money that they could cross-subsidize breaking unions, it would be much harder for them to stand up against a union. And that's true with like Verizon. You know, Verizon has a whole wireless division that they can use to subsidize uh, striking divisions on their wireline. You know, it's so it's like big capital, concentrated capital can easily out, outweigh um, organized labor, right? So that's why you want to keep capital um, – you know, decentralized. Yeah. The case I've seen Matt Brunig make for why it's harder to organize small businesses is that since unions in the United States are usually organized at the business level or the company level, uh, they have like these fixed costs. So if you have only like 10 employees, it's hard to, you know, actually pay for a union and make it worth its while. Whereas if you have 10,000, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, like there are a lot of ways to protect workers. And like one of the things that's important to it's important to distinguish between like unionization structures don't always make sense. Like industrial union structures are an important protection for large industrial companies. But, you know, another way to protect uh, producers, like it doesn't make sense for like farmers who own their own land, right? Owning your own land 
with price supports that make sure that you can grow your crops and make a living, that is a labor protection. Um, liberals don't think of it like, like a labor protection, but it is a labor protection. Um, patent laws that protect engineers who invent things as opposed to protecting corporations that use patents to exploit um, or, or sue, that is actually a labor protection. You're protecting the engineer over his useful um, energy and, and scientific discoveries. Uh, copyright law, properly done, is a protection for the artist. So if you look at across, there's like a mosaic of labor protections that are designed to protect the producer. And so we need to sort of stop just co-ops, right? Co-ops are a protection for producers. Like we need to stop thinking about let's just have everyone be in an industrial labor union model when what's really going on is we have different industries that need different labor protection, the different producer protections in each of those industries. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, so I, I want to move on to this point you spent a lot of time on in the book, which is, I think, a really interesting one, uh, inevitability. So there's this kind of consensus reaction to the New Deal anti-monopolist era of American history. And it didn't actually come from the right. It came from people like John Kenneth Galbraith and Richard Hofstadter. Um, and there's this quote from Galbraith that kind of captures it. It's, it is part of the vanity of modern man that he can decide the character of his, of his economic system. Um, so this is like really interesting, right? You're coming off the heels of maybe the greatest restructuring of American political economy in its history. And then you have all these people saying like, oh yeah, like we can't change this, right? Like this is how it is. But then spend their career directly or indirectly undermining that system and, and creating a new one in its place. Yeah, that's right. And that's like the, so the book Goliath, um, you know, that's, that's from the chapter, that's the return of the corporatists, right? And yeah. one of the differences between my book and I think a lot of the stories you're going to hear kind of on the left is that the book is actually more of a critique of the left than it is of the right. I mean, certainly I go into the law and economics movement which I, was a very cynical movement. Um, so it's, I'm not, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is really explain where these ideas came from so to explain why corporate actors did what they did and to explain why the counterculture in the form of Nader's consumer rights movement did what they did. Um, cause I really wanted to get to the stories that were in the heads of those, um, policymakers in 2009. And so, yeah, so what, what you saw in the 1950s was the return of the, um, kind of the state planner types who had lost in the New Deal. So the New Dealers were Wilsonians. They were people that fought against monopoly. There were debates, right? Because there were some Teddy Roosevelt people, bull moose types. But the Wilsonians, ultimately, the Brandeisians won that debate. And so there was an aggressive antitrust and anti-monopoly tradition that was baked into the um, it was baked into the, the, the New Deal apparatus. I have a chapter on it called the Middle Class Constitution, which had all sorts of impacts. Um, but in the 1950s, you saw this, the, the, the bull moosers, the sort of quasi-socialists come back. And that was in the form of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the great economist, and in many ways a heroic figure, but also a very flawed thinker. And then Richard Hofstetter, who was the great kind of consensus historian, who, who was really, both of these guys were really singed by the McCarthy Red Scare. And what they did is they looked at the debates that had gone on around monopoly power that were really in the late 19th century, early 20th century among farmers and populists fighting against railroad barons. And they said, that's not actually, this is Hofstetter's thing. He's like, that's not actually, um, that wasn't about the money trust. That was that, and the money trust was always kind of a, a myth. 
it was actually those those farmers were were really just Anglo-Saxons who were afraid of losing their their social status, status anxiety, uh, in the in the wake of a of a lot of immigrants and on a polyglot society. And this was this was because Hofstetter was Milton Friedman was actually involved. You know, Milton Friedman was Jewish. Hofstetter was half Jewish. It's a bunch of of people who were Jewish at Columbia University, and they were they were afraid of. Um, of the McCarthy purges, and they they were they didn't they wanted to make an argument that was very was sort of culturally oriented. A lot of them were sort of socialists, and so the recrafting of American history, um, not as a series of battles among plutocrats, people fighting over democracy, really the Jefferson Hamilton frame. The, the Hofstadter substituted this idea that Americans are always into this kind of thing called capitalism. Capitalism is just this inevitable thing that creates bigger corporations that are always just producing an endless amount of jobs and stuff. This was a, a, a frame that Galbraith used called affluence. And, and really the debates are just over cultural identity, right? So you can draw a straight line from Hofstadter's thinking around status anxiety to like you know, the way that the Democratic Party developed its thinking around political economy from the 1980s, really until the financial crisis. That's when it was really developed, that theory of politics. Yeah. And, and it's kind of just comes up at, again and again, right, where you have this ruling class that, you know, knowingly or unknowingly construct an ideology and rhetorical style that argues not only is the rule just, it's inevitable and natural. And in the past, this was like done through clunky ways, like the divine right of kings, Right. But now we're a bit more sophisticated. We use the idea of meritocracy and like natural monopolies, right? And there's just this totally. tendency towards market concentration because these people are just so, so smart. That's exactly right. And you know, it's funny. So if you, you ever want to have some fun, uh, actually, I shouldn't say have some fun, but I enjoyed it. So just download uh, Brandeis's Other People's Money, The Bankers and How They Use It. It's, it's, a, it's online. It's like a 90-page book. It's just beautifully uh, done. But he actually goes into that and he says, you know, look, today we use this it was called the banker's ethics, right? The, the idea that bankers, if, if I'm financing a monopolist, another banker wouldn't dare finance a competitor. That would just be against sort of the gentleman's code, which they called banker's ethics. He said, this is exactly the divine right of kings. They used to call it the divine right of kings. Now they call it banker's ethics. Today we would call it economics. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's these, these constructed myths that explain why an aristocracy is ruling by right and not by uh, the, 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 uh, mask of and, and not just through power yeah and, and the chicago schoolers are, are maybe the best example of this because they come up with this law and economics program with the support of right-wing billionaires that's detailed in, in uh great detail in uh, dark money by jane mayer but they're arguing that they're just studying the inevitable outcomes of the market when in reality their very influence proves the importance of institutions in shaping our society and uh, you have a good quote here saying corporations and markets were, were engineered and they could be structured to promote a free and self-governing people capable of making intelligent decisions about politics, but they could also become mechanisms, mechanisms of oppression. Yeah, that was really well written. You should read that book. <laughs> called Goliath. And it's available at IndieBound and also a host of aspiring book selling monopolists. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so the law and economics movement, could you just give us a rundown of, of what they argued? Right. So the law and economics movement was a um, – they were a, a specific intellectual movement that was also created in the 1950s. And they said effectively that 
democratic control over a political economy uh, was a bad idea, right? What you needed to do was put control over questions of economic resources in the hands of disinterested scientific experts that we call economists. They used a, a basically they said, you know, economists can figure out how to make things more efficient. And that is the, the way that we can have a, a better society. And then they also use this. So they use the language of science, right? Which is, and then they made fun of anybody who said, oh, that, that, that we should have justice. They'd be like, oh, you don't understand economics, right? You just, you're silly, right? And the liberals are vain. That's the great sin of the liberals, moral vanity. So they're, they're like, you know, they're just like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand economics. Uh, I don't know. And then they like, it was, they were, they were co-opted liberals, um, but the other thing they did is they used in their political rhetoric, they used the language of Jefferson and the new dealers had used the language of Jefferson, which is both, it's both uh, populist progressive and it's conservative in that it's about challenging power, challenging concentrated power, but then conserving home and community and church. Right. So it sounds, it's, it's basically whoever controls Jeffersonian rhetoric in America controls American politics. And so in the, in, the, in the New Deal era, Jeffersonian rhetoric was used to promote the New Deal, and the, the Democrats were in charge. And then in the 1970s and 80s, the Republicans started using the Jeffersonian language to promote uh, corporate liberty. And, um, and the Democrats used this very technocratic language that was developed by Hofstetter and Galbraith around affluence and status anxiety and, and technocracy. And so the Republicans in the law and economics movement controlled politics because they were they were the ones who were using the language both of of Jeffersonian democracy, although not in service of Jeffersonian democratic ends, but they were using that language. And then they had the way of getting into the institutions because they used this language of sort of pseudoscience. Yeah, and, and in their journals, they'll prove that something is true. So they'll take some like contentious political question. And prove that like unions are bad for growth, or that monopoly is good for whatever thing. Right, or or that democracy it doesn't work. Right, I mean that was that was like part of the calculus of consent was like you know James Buchanan. You know he was basically saying, oh, you know, um, public officials are all self-maximizing, you know, rational actors that are just seeking to enlarge their bureaucrat bureaucracies and and reward their voting blocks, and all voters are you know rational self-maximize all this junk science. It's just nonsense. And they don't leave any room for things like cooperation or justice or, you know, your, our basic humanity. And it's just like, it's nonsense. And you read, you read like Stigler, George Stigler was an important, you know, I think he's just something he wrote, but he was like, you know, these ridiculous statements, like until like, you know, James Buchanan, like no one had ever really had a, a complete theory of how governments work. Or no one had like studied how governments work, stuff like that it was just like crazy. Like, oh, really? Nobody like thought about how to make a government work until like the 1960s. Really? Like, that's <laughs> like nonsense. But like, I remember this one quote where one of them, I think it was Stigler, but I don't remember exactly. He was like, no one really understood Adam Smith until the Chicago school. And it was just like, what? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like the, Adam Smith's, you know, Wealth of Nations was written in 1776. Like, I'm sorry, but like the first people to understand that book were not, you know, people that read it in the 1950s and 60s. So they just kind of like, it's just this weird, like pseudoscience-y, like elitist frame that like, that worked. Um, and it worked for weird reasons, but it essentially worked because 
the um, the liberals, right, had been taken over by the elitists like Galbraith and Hofstetter and had all this junk in their heads about status anxiety and didn't think corporations and banks mattered. They thought, you know, I mean, for not stupid reasons. I mean, the main problem was not the banking system. It was the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement. But in the 1970s, all of a sudden they had huge problems that had to do with the financial system. You had bankruptcies, you had bankruptcy of New York, you had inflation. And the liberals hadn't, you know, they hadn't been trained, like the younger liberals in particular, they hadn't been trained in how to think about corporate power or banking power they just thought of affluence. They thought of status anxiety. And so when the law and economics movement, which agreed in many ways with the assumptions of Galbraith, they hated Galbraith, but they agreed with a lot of the assumptions and stuff's just inevitable. They had a whole panoply of legal tools that they could, they said, oh, just release concentrated capital. And here are all of these legal tools to do it. And that will take care of the inflation problem. And oh, by the way, Walter Riston of Citibank, he didn't cause the Vietnam War. He's cool. He wants to like make Citibank more diverse. Right, just release concentrated capital, not those like fuddy duddy like old New Dealers, and it like worked. It was an argument that that seemed cool at the time, and so like Gary Hart and all these guys like adopted it. And you can see the beginnings of this democratic realignment, right, from the small business person and, and the farmer to this corporatist multiracial coalition that's anti-war and pro-civil rights, which like the right positions to have, but really has nothing important to say or interesting to say about corporate power. Right. And like this is this is a really interesting tension because, you know, there's two great questions in American uh, questions about justice in America uh, going back to the founding in a battle over those questions. And the first is like, can you have economic justice in a self-governing democracy? And some people say yes. Some people like H Hamilton said no. Jefferson basically said yes. And that's the fight over monopoly. And then the second question is, in that democracy, who is a citizen, right? And then that's the question where you get to race and identity and gender and all those. those um, and the, 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 they're, they're, you can answer one of those questions right and one of those questions wrong, or you can answer both of them wrong or both of them right. And they're separate questions, although they're very heavily related. And I think what we've what we've seen with the Democratic Party in the neoliberal era is that we've seen a party that answers everybody should be a citizen, but we shouldn't live in a self-governing, you know, in a in a govern in a democracy or in an economic democracy, and that those that creates an extraordinarily confused society, and that's where we are right now. Yeah, and I'm forgetting the the guy's name, but the Democratic uh, strategist who came up with Earth Day. Oh, um, what's his name? Oh my God. He's like the most cynical guy. Um, yeah, I'll, um, I'll find it. Um, so this guy also, yeah, he came up with Earth Day, but also uh, was a lobbyist for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, um, no, he, was, he was a campaign manager for Bobby Kennedy. And then yes. when Bobby Kennedy was shot, it's like he went super cynical and just like came up with Earth Day and then like was on like, yeah, no, oh man, I, I got to look it up. He also created, you know, the advertorial uh, yes. The other thing on the New York Times, you look at it and it's like, this is, it's like on the op-ed page. So it looks like an op-ed, but it's actually like, this is a paid announcement from Exxon. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Invented that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this guy, and he also came up with the idea to like realign the Democratic Party with, um, like I mentioned earlier, there's multiracial corporatist, uh, coalition and away from the New Deal consensus that kind of underpinned the party up until that point. Yeah, no, it's, I got a good chapter on that called the, I think it's the New Deal crack up. The liberal crack up, at the least in my party, version. Sorry, the liberal crack up. 
Um, yeah. yeah. And these guys hated, um, they hated small businesses. They thought small businessmen were a bunch of like, you know, Joe McCarthy supporting like reactionary racists. Fred Dutton. Right. Fred Dutton. Um, yeah. His, uh, obituary is, is something just like the New York times obituary. That's like, doesn't really say anything, but you can read between the lines and kind of see who the guy was. Yeah. So in his book, in the commission, he said, um, he sought to eject the white working class from the democratic party, which he saw as quote, a major redoubt of traditional Americanism and of the anti-Negro anti-youth vote. The workers he argued were now quote, the principal group arrayed against the forces of change. Right. So he, he explicitly sought to pull organized labor out of the Democratic Party. It was a explicit way to say, let us reject the uh, white worker, uh, push the white worker out of the Democratic Party. The new coalition will be young people, um, women, um, college, edu- young people, particularly college educated young people, African-Americans. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like. It was amazing. He also didn't believe that um, – here's another thing he said, and I think this is more important. The balance of political power, he argued, had shifted, quote, from the economic to the psychological to a certain extent, from the stomach and pocketbook to the psyche, and perhaps sooner or later even to the soul. Right? Wow. Like Some powerful age, rhetoric there. Yeah. It's just like it's new age like bullshit rhetoric being like money is – too prosaic to care about resources and like we must think about new age sort of you know it's just this weird like every time someone virtue signals you know something annoying and then goes to their yoga class um like that's that's like the legacy of of fred dutton and there's nothing wrong with yoga i like yoga and (laughs) but like you know what i mean right like that elitist that elitism um that's like a direct it was politically constructed by people who believed in it and, and that's an ancient tension, right, between historical materialism and idealism. Um, the idea that ideas are what primarily matter versus the material conditions. And he's making a very clear bet on ideas. No, I, I don't. Sorry, I, I would just disagree with that. I think he actually just, you know, because because there are different ways to organize um, material relationships, right? And like you can go back to like regulated monopoly or regulated competition. And those have fundamental differing visions of what a, a humanity is about and like Teddy Roosevelt really didn't, you know, he was very skeptical of self-government and um, Woodrow Wilson was not. He believed in self-government. Um, and I think like Fred Dutton was really, you know, it's it's when he wasn't saying, he was saying that material, he was accepting the, 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 the basic inevitabilist framework of a Teddy Roosevelt. So he was actually both, both sides would be making kind of intellectual, would live in an intellectual tradition. Um, it's just that his intellectual tradition was one in which material questions didn't matter because we had already conquered that problem. It was like a Galbraithian frame. Gotcha. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like we've already satisfied the lower ones. Yeah. And also inequality, you know, I mean, it's Galbraith was very aggressive about saying inequality didn't matter. We had, we had solved it. Um, uh, corporations were the, were inevitable. Like he, he said, corporations are not relying on Wall Street anymore. Um, you have this thing called the techno structure, which is just all of these kind of corporate management, and they really run everything. And they're this inevitableist group that's just going to run things um, efficiently and well. And there's just an endless number of jobs and material, like material prosperity. 
And, you know, it was like this inevitableist frame. We're already living in a kind of paradise. We just have to, you know, make, spend more on, you know, public parks and things like that. Um, and it's, it's like saying we don't need to focus on the politics of production. There are no more politics of production. There are only the politics of consumption, the politics of the soul. So this is an amazing transition. I wanted to talk about consumer consumerism and the consumer orientation next. Um, so you talk about Ralph Nader, and he's relentlessly focused on consumer rights. Um, he writes Unsafe at Any Speed about, I think, GM and their lack of safety um, measures in place for their cars. Um, how does this consumer orientation undermine the fight against monopoly power? Yeah, so monopoly power... The question of monopoly is really a question of how you produce things in society and, you know, suppliers and workers and what it, what is a, what does a corporation owe to the local community? How do, how does that corporation have, have um, use, use and have political power? And when you just focus on consumption, right, you are just a consumer and you may choose among a, a bunch of different goods, you, you lose all of the politics of production, right? And you're just, you're just like, I am not a citizen. I don't have political power to make choices about how I can bargain as a worker, or as a producer, what I can sell into a marketplace, what ideas I can communicate. The only thing I care about is are the products that are for sale that I can buy. And that's like, you know, as a speaker, you don't matter, right? So your voice doesn't matter when you th- identify as a consumer. The only thing that matters is whether you have the ability to buy things from what appear to be efficient um, uh, retailers, right? It's just a very limiting and, and uh, kind of anti-democratic way to understand uh, politics. Yeah. So as long as yeah, consumers aren't hurt by this merger, then the merger goes through. That's kind of like the paradigm. Right, that comes up. Yeah, that's right. And and so this is, or as long as, you know, as, long as practice is is good for consumers, then um, or ha- you know through the lens of price. But <coughs> so let me let me start over. So as long as the problem with consumer politics is that what you're really saying is you're you're saying well what we need to do is we need to have efficient production and that's the only thing that matters. Power doesn't matter. So how do you determine what's efficient? At some level, you just kind of turn it over to these scientists, these, these people called economists, and they make the determination about what's efficient and, whatnot, and what's not. And you saw in the 1970s, you know, the, the Naderites waged an attack on the Federal Trade Commission. And one of their, their lines of attack was, can you believe it? They don't use economists very often in their decision making. They don't use experts. That's crazy. That's bad for consumers, right? So you can see right there that they're, they're, one of the arguments is consumers are being harmed and we need to stop that, which is, you know, that's a good thing. But then on the other hand, they're saying, and the way to stop it is to, is to give power to uh, aristocrats who mean well and who can make choices for, uh, for people. Um, and that's a dangerous way to think about politics. Now, I don't think they necessarily understood what they were doing, but that's what they ended up doing. Yeah. And, and so this is particularly dangerous because it really is a political choice whether to allow a merger to go through or how much economic concentration you want to have in your society. But it's framed as like this completely objective, um, neutral choice made by experts. But then those experts are kind of living in this ideological world that's being funded by you know people that have certain agendas. And then you get a whole bunch of like economists who say that like, oh yeah, this merger won't increase prices or hurt the consumer. 
because like, you know, the consumer surplus actually goes up in this and like the dead weight loss goes down and like whatever. There's all these like fancy scientific terms, which, you know, economists have come up with a lot of useful ideas and, and that's not to like discredit the entire the field, but it is still a political choice ultimately. Yeah, and I think that the entire field is discredited. I mean, I, I don't think that all economists are bad, but I do think that enough of them are bad and that the other economists kind of don't self-police such that you you know the whole profession is in a crisis of legitimacy. Um, and they have to figure out a way to kick out the people that are actually corrupt because there's a lot of corruption in the economics profession. And so if you're going to claim that we need to use this specialized language to make political choices and this specialized language is one that only a small group of people can communicate in, you can't allow any corruption and they allow a lot of corruption. So there is a challenge to the profession. And I think that we have to uh, we have to conclude that that until they clean themselves up, that we shouldn't listen to economists really at all. Yeah. And, and there's a fun stat in there about how I think like 3% of economics papers in the leading journal in the 50s had equations on them. And that number jumped to like over half a few decades later. And having studied economics, it is extremely hard to parse. Um, and I was always frustrated with like the pedagogy of it. And the classes where that I enjoyed the most just taught you the history of economic thought and showed like, hey, it wasn't always this way. And that these supply and demand charts were like some guy came up with them. And before that, people thought about it this way. And like, I feel like that's a much better way to think about these problems. Yeah, I, I reminds me of a story. A friend of mine is an economist told me, I think it was Dean Baker. Um, the Dean, Dean was like, you know, I had this paper on, I'm like, the minimum wage or something. I was basically showing that like when you raise the minimum wage, it doesn't. It, it's good, mm -hmm. right? And he was like, it's a very trivial, he had like a very trivial exercise to show that. And then he, I think he worked with another economist to present it at a Brookings, at, at Brookings. And this other economist was like, no, 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 wait, we got to, we got to change this. What you got to do is stick in a very complicated, entirely irrelevant, useless regression function in the middle of this, just to make it seem sophisticated. And they did that and presented it. And he's like, and they, people accepted it like really, they were just like, oh, okay. And then they talked about it like seriously and they, as a serious economic paper and nobody brought up the totally irrelevant, like fancy regression function that they stuck in the middle of it purely for like aesthetic reasons. It just made the paper sort of quote unquote serious. It was just like ridiculous. Was this like intentional to demonstrate the idiocy of it or was it like? No, no, it was, it was intentional to intimidate people into accepting that the paper was serious, right? So he was like, I couldn't use a simple, like people wouldn't accept it if it was just so simple and intuitive. Mm -hmm. They needed to be, have some like mumbo jumbo, like magic pixie dust they couldn't understand. Otherwise they wouldn't accept it as serious. So we put a complicated, hard to understand regression function that was completely unnecessary in order for those people to take it seriously. So they could be like, oh, those are equations. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Right. Just really captures a lot of the problem right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just junk. It's like junk science. Yeah. So, so you wrote a little bit about Elizabeth Warren in, in the end of the book, and I've seen her called a liberal in the Louis Brandeis uh, vein, which I think there's some truth to, but her consumer orientation, I think, is more prominent than her antitrust orientation. Would you agree with that? Well, so I, I also wrote about, I think Bernie's yes, yeah, in there same too. Paragraph. Um, so, and because Bernie, I didn't put this in the book because I couldn't, I was, when I was doing fact checking, I couldn't find it, but then I found it later, unfortunately. He used to actually carry around 
um, reports that Wright Patman wrote in the 1970s on banking power. Bernie used to carry them around in Vermont when he ran for office, which That's is kind of awesome. cool. Um, Very Bernie. Yeah. He's probably telling like 12 year olds about it too. Yeah, no, it was a large, you know, oh, banking power. You know, we've got the millionaires and the billionaires. Um, and uh, no, but he like that, that, that was really like that tradition that Bernie is carrying forward and that Warren is carrying forward are both, uh, you know, that comes from Patman, which came from Brandeis, which goes back to Jefferson. Um, and it's, it's like real, it's, it's like part of our American tradition. Um, you know, the, the first, the first democracy is America, first modern democracy. Um, and that, that is, that is the tradition that Bernie and Warren are carrying forward. I think that uh, Warren is more identified with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because that's what she accomplished during the financial crisis. But, you know, she came out of the consumer rights world, right? Like we're moving into a much more producer politics oriented world. And, you know, I started learning about monopolies in 2011. And I think that like, it's not that long ago that we all started learning about this. So I think Warren is in that same camp and she has been, you know, talking about monopolies pretty aggressively, actually very aggressively like since, um, since 2016, she gave the very first speech, right? Any Senator or saying we have a monopoly problem with Google and Amazon. And that was in 2016. And then she gave another one in 2017. And I think one of the most prominent plans that she has is to break up big tech, which is a very strong anti-monopoly frame. And then another plan that she has is to break up big ag, which is another strong anti-monopoly frame. And I think Bernie has said uh, a bunch of that, but so is actually Biden has a bunch of antitrust stuff. And and then you have like 50 state attorney generals who led by a conservative Texan named Ken Paxton investigating Google. You have senators like Josh Hawley on the right, really going after concentrated power. You know, you have Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney saying we really shouldn't cut capital gains taxes. That was a, a couple of weeks ago. You have this really impressive and, and, and I, think it's, I think it's happening across the board in all of our institutions, Republican and Democratic Party and military, business world, among labor. People are saying, you know, the old framework, the law and economics, libertarian framework is unstable. And it, it and we have to find something else because it, do, it, it doesn't sustain the kind of, of world that we want to live in. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot there. I do want to touch on something that you're known for on Twitter, which is uh, shitting on Obama. So what is what is your issue with Obama and his legacy? And, and what could he have done differently in the financial crisis? You know, that's not entirely fair. I really do admire the former president of the United States and current Instagram influencer, Barack Obama. <laughs> Um, you have me for a second. That, uh, yeah, that, that I, I think that's one of the jokes I'm proudest of. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Obama was uh, and is a, a neoliberal, right? And he, he really believed in concentrating wealth and power into the hands of experts who are uh, trained. Um, around uh, technocratic ideals um, and um, that are trained around technocratic ideals. And, um, you know, he, the people that he put around him, everyone from Tim Geithner to Ben Bernanke to Eric Holder to Larry Summers, you know, they were, they were trained in this way of seeing the world like finance first, um, expertise first. 
And, you know, it really is part of that, you know, Alexander Hamilton tradition of sort of soft aristocracy. We know what's best for you, um, a kind of a new nationalism framework. And you see, you know, you see it was a it was a disaster, right, Um, on on most levels, just on a policy outcome in terms of the foreclosure crisis, in terms of of a lot of foreign policy in terms of climate change, in terms of the opioid crisis, in terms of rural America, just like all over what America became weaker and less free as a result of these choices that Obama made. And then after, you know, he left office, he goes around to Wall Street, gives paid speeches, and like is basically on a nonstop luxury vacation with billionaires, which is, I think, really problematic because it it, it demonstrates that um, that luxury and the kind of economic rewards, the, the self enrichment of, of public service, like it says, public service is a place for aristocrats, just like the, the top ranks of business. And like as a statement about your moral system, like I don't think that America should be an aristocracy. Um, what some friends of, you know, and I think that's really dangerous and I think it's really problematic. And so I point that out a lot and it's something that I think Democrats are really going to have to reckon with because we did a really bad job. We did a really lot of really bad things uh, and they were explicit choices by the Obama administration. And they were choices that they made because they believed they were the right choices and they did a lot of damage. And like, we haven't reckoned with that. And I think it's kind of crazy. I mean, so the defense you'll see from like the Pod Save America guys is that Obama got the best he could, given that he had to rely on support from conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin, Joe Lieberman, Ben Nelson. Um, so could you just highlight a few of those specific choices that he made? Yeah, I mean, it, it like comes out all the time, right? And it's it's like, take the Boeing 737 MAX, right? The regulatory like takeover of the FAA started really under the Bush administration, and then it continued throughout the Obama administration. And then it manifested with the crash of the, the, the 737 MAX um, under, under Trump. But it's like, come on, guys. You could have done something about it, like this incredible corruption and destruction of the, the, this aerospace company, which used to manufacture wonderful airplanes. That is a result partially of Obama's failure to govern. You saw that with the foreclosure crisis. There was, they had $75 billion of money to deal with foreclosures that Congress appropriated. They ended up spending about $5 billion or so. They left $70 billion unspent right, to deal with foreclosures. Nothing to do with Congress. It was purely operational choices. Um, you, know, you saw them not challenge a single, like I think Google and Facebook each bought you know, massive number of companies under the Bush and Obama administrations, and the Obama administration didn't challenge a single merger, right? And they could have, and that was purely an administrative question, and they didn't. You see, you know, and then more stuff keeps coming out. Like the now there are all these uh, problems with vaping, right? Vaping, the vaping industry was just being developed when Obama started. And there were people at the FDA who wanted to do something about the different flavors of vaping, which now turns out are really dangerous. And the Obama administration... Um, effectively uh, stop the FDA from from doing something about vaping. And you see something similar with like opioids where, you know, Jamie Gorlick, who's this like super sleazy Democrat that is now on the board of Amazon, was like very aggressive about making sure that the Obama administration wouldn't, wouldn't do anything 
about the distributors of opioids. Like they wouldn't, they, she fought back the DEA so they wouldn't bring criminal charges against, you know, pharma drug dealers, right? You could see this like over and over and over, like at pretty much every level, like Puerto Rico is a good example where, you know, in 2016, like Puerto Rico had been in basically a depression since 2009 and the Obama administration didn't do anything about it. And then in 2016, they passed basically a bill that handed the, the island over to hedge funds. And everybody knew that the electric utility was in a weakened condition. And then under Trump, a hurricane comes and destroys the utility. But that was all set up under the Obama administration. You just go over and over and over. Airline consolidation, consolidation in pharmaceuticals, consolidation in technology, consolidation in media. There just a lot of stuff happened under the Obama administration to make our world um, less free and 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 more uh, more unequal. Yeah, the uh, article you had in Salon, I think in 2012, has this chart, and it's like corporate profits and American home equity. And in the recession, both take a huge hit. But then corporate profits rebound and actually go higher than ever before, whereas home equity just stays at a, a permanently lower level. Yeah. And then the home equity, just like so people understand, it's like that's the value of a home, right? And that's the main store of the American middle class wealth. Like they, the American middle class doesn't save their money in a bank. They save it in their home. And so the financial crisis and the foreclosure crisis by choosing – to basically reduce the debts of banks, but not reduce the debts of homeowners, um, they, they effectively was a mass transfer of wealth from the middle class to the kind of um, elite sort of banking world. Yeah, and there's something and like they didn't put a single banker on trial. I mean, yeah, you can go over and go like cool. that's crazy. Yeah, right? yeah, and, and under Bush, I think something like sixty percent of new income went to the one percent, but under Obama, it was over ninety percent went to the top one percent. Right, right. Um, no, and I and I think that like you look at that, and it's like, I think one of the things that you hear from defenders of Obama, and I kind of feel bad for the for the Pod Save uh, guys because I think that they're defend they weren't making those decisions; they were really kind of marketing those decisions. And I their wagon is hitched. What they've hitched their, their wagon, wagon, right? <laughs> they should. I mean, look, it should be okay to break from. Like it, it, that's the thing. Like, I I feel like we should be able to move beyond this, right? Like it's not. I don't hold Obama accountable for making all these terrible decisions necessarily. I think what I really don't, because I think like, look, anybody in power is going to make a lot of decisions and some of them are going to be terrible. And when you're in power, that means that people are going to die and it's awful, but that's just the nature of power. That's just life, right? What I don't like about how Obama operates and how a lot of the, the these elite Democrats operate is that they don't admit that they made these decisions, Right. And that's, I think, the, the thing that was so infuriating about dealing with the Obama administration, and this is something Reed Hunt goes into, but they made, they made a decision to have a foreclosure crisis. Right. And they knew that you could either recapitalize the banks and restructure the banks and, and sort of stop a foreclosure wave, or you could just have a foreclosure wave and preserve the existing capital structure of the banks. That was the big choice. And they couldn't. There, there was a crisis. They didn't cause the crisis, but they did have the ability to choose how to respond to it. And they made the decision to have a foreclosure crisis. And Tim Geithner said this later on when he, like Neil Borofsky and Elizabeth Warren confronted him and said, hey, none of your foreclosure mitigation programs are working. And he said, they're working fine. And they're like, what do you mean? He said, oh, they're not intended to help people stop foreclosure. They're intended to, quote, foam the runway for the banks, which is to say that like space out the balance sheet hits that the banks would have to take when they 
foreclosed on people. And the problem with that framework of essentially putting out programs that you market as foreclosure mitigation programs, but they're actually not intended to help people with foreclosure, is that it's a systemic lie. And it doesn't allow Congress to actually debate whether that policy is a good policy choice. And it doesn't allow Democrats to debate it, and it doesn't allow the public to debate it. Instead, we debate these weird things that are often sort of quasi-racist, and Democrats perceive, or as just straight-up racist, not quasi. Um, and Democrats have no way to actually articulate dissatisfaction, um, or and they have no way to articulate a kind of, hey, we should have different policy objectives. It all just becomes about like, bad faith. What do you mean that Obama is lying? Like you're making this personal, you're dealing with like, you know, you just don't like the guy or whatever. It becomes very personalized. But the problem is that it really is an an issue of them, of Geithner, like systematically lying about what they were doing. And so you can't get to the policy argument without getting through the bad faith. Um, And that's just, that's just a tragedy because it means that Democrats, we as a party have a really hard time talking about what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, part of Obama's legacy is clearly Trump. And to say otherwise, it's just sticking your head in the sand. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think there are a lot of reasons why, you know, there's it, it's a it's a very difficult conversation to have. But like Obama's legacy is fundamentally entrenched cynicism about democracy. Right. That's what he did. He taught people that democracy can't work. And then Trump use that entrenched cynicism to get elected by saying, yeah, democracy is a sham. Vote for me. I'll cut you in on my corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I've got to run, Matt, but uh, I really enjoyed the book. It's uh, Goliath, the Hundred Year War between Monopoly Power and Populism. No, dem- think- Monopoly Power and Democracy. Oh, sorry. I got the old old version. Yeah, the old, old version, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, I think, essential reading for anybody who wants to understand how we got to where we are. And uh, I'm really excited for it to come out on October 15th. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for interviewing me. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time, Matt. All right. Talk to you later. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.